Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. Turn with me in your Bible there. And as you do that, I wanted to tell you that I remembered this week um, a conversation that I had not too long ago with the 16-year-old daughter of a friend of mine. And we were, we were just talking about where she likes to go and study sometimes, and the different coffee shops that she likes to go to and sit and study, and I like to do the same thing. So we were just talking about that. And um, I asked her, I said, when you study in coffee shops, are, are you able to focus, or is that distracting? She said, well, you know, some, I can put my AirPods in, and then I'm fine. But when I'm, when I'm not using those, uh, sometimes it's distracting because of conversations going on around me. And, and then she said, just kind of out of the blue, she said, you know, it's funny. I've noticed um, that when I listen to these conversations, and so I'm not trying to, um, when I listen to the conversations around me, she said, most people talk about other people. And I said, yeah, I've noticed that too. That's so fascinating. Uh, when I eavesdrop in coffee shops, uh, which I've only got one ear that works, so it's not hard and not easy to do. Um, I, I've noticed that too, that people are always talking about relationships. Um, and she noticed that these conversations uh, often happen to do with relationships between the people talking or relationships with other people. Um, it, and I've noticed, too, it could be empty nesters talking about their adult children or their grandchildren. It could be parents talking about their children, uh, coworkers talking about their boss or other coworkers. Uh, Teenagers talking about other teenagers. It's just fascinating. We like to talk about relationships. Um, so start listening to other people's conversations at coffee shops and test my theory that most of the time people are talking about other people and relationships. And now you're thinking, so pastor, the application of today's sermon is to eavesdrop on other people's private conversations. No, no, I'm just saying that if you happen to hear one, listen to what they're saying. See if, see if the theory holds true. Here's the point. Relationships have such a powerful grip on us. Why? Uh, why is it that relationships uh, can give us the greatest joy and also cause the greatest heartache? Um, well, look at Genesis 2.18 before we read the whole passage together. Uh, just look at this one particular verse that we're going to see when we read it together. Uh, Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Up until this point in Genesis 1 and 2, God has, said, has created and created and has said, It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. This is the first time in history... That God said something is not good. Um, and it's fascinating because Adam not only had the whole world, he had God the creator himself. Adam was in relationship, unhindered relationship with God, and yet God said there's something 
still not good about this. Relationships dominate our conversations and our dreams and our hurts and our hopes and our fears. Why? Because we were made to not be alone. God knows that it's not good. Remember, we've talked about already that God made us in his image. We were made to reflect and uh, represent and resemble the triune God, the three-in-one God, the true and living God. And we know that from the rest of the teaching of the whole Bible that God is that one God in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. He is a relationship. And relationships matter because relationships mirror God. So, if you'll stand with me, we're going to discover more about this as we look this morning. We're going to go back to Genesis 1 again, a couple of verses, and then we're going to go back to Genesis 2.18. So, let's hear the word of the God who loves us together. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now let's go to chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman And brought her to the man. Then the man said, this, and and this is poetry, Hebrew poetry right here. So the man became a poet when he saw the woman. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, we thank you for this word. And we ask that you would speak to us through it. Um, Help us to uh, know you better, to know ourselves better know our purpose to mirror you to the world. Through Christ, we pray. Amen. (coughs) 
I want to say in advance, thank you for your patience. The cough has not been doing well the last couple of days. Um, former First Lady Nancy Reagan, wife of former U.S. President Ronald Reagan, uh, lovingly took care of her husband in his later years as he uh, struggled with severe dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, Mrs. Reagan told a story of a time that she and Mr. Reagan went to a restaurant in Bel Air, and uh, while they were there, all the other diners stood and gave a, an impromptu standing ovation with applause. And Ronald turned to his wife and asked Nancy, what is this about? And she responded, well, well Ronnie, this is for you. And he asked, why? She said, because you were the president of the United States. And he said, is that so? You can just hear him. I've resisted not doing his voice there. Um, but how profoundly sad that is. Um, here he was. He was once the most powerful human being on the planet. But he no longer remembered being so. And friends, how profoundly sad is it that so many of us no longer remember that we were made in the image of God to be powerful human beings on his planet. Oh, we're doing everything we can, we can to, to live like powerful human beings. But that's just an echo of Eden uh, that none of us can shake. But we've forgotten what it truly means to be human. And that's why God gave us Genesis 1 and 2. To remind us of something long forgotten about who we are and how to live as people made in God's image. Now... Uh, I want to stop right here and give a pastoral caution, if, if I might. And in order to do that, I want to read uh, a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18. It's short. Listen, listen to what he said. You'll, you'll know this, very familiar, uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke says that Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So that's his audience. <coughs> Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, pastoral caution is this. There's a danger that we might leave our time in Genesis 1 and 2, shaking our fist at the culture more than pounding our fists on our chest. 
it would be very easy for us, including the preacher, so this is not, I'm not just pastoring you, I'm pastoring me. It would be very easy to read these verses this morning with hearts that say, see there? It says right there that there's only two genders, male and female. That a man should live like a man and a woman should live like a woman. It says right there that sex is only for marriage and marriage... uh, defined as one woman and one man for life. It's right there. And then you would be right. I would be right. Because that is what we're going to say. And that is what the Bible teaches. It's what these verses teach. And Jesus himself affirmed all of those things when he quoted this very passage, or part of it, in a conversation he had with some religious leaders in his day. Here's what he said. Some Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, there God, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, Jesus affirms everything that Genesis 1 and 2 are affirming this morning. Male, female, marriage between one woman, one man. Um, but remember, Jesus was talking to men who knew what Genesis said. They were scholars. They knew the Bible. They knew what Genesis said, but they were not doing what it said. Because they were trying, they were still looking for, they were looking for a way out of marriage. And Jesus didn't say that there was a way out here except to say, no, you're forgetting the purpose of the marriage. Friends, we can get it right in our heads and wrong in our hearts. That's where these people were. They had the right truth in their heads, but they were wrong in their hearts about it. So, here's the pastoral caution. This morning, I want us to look at ourselves and ask ourselves, have we forgotten who we are? Have we forgotten that we were made to relate to one another in ways that put the true God on display so the world can see him, so the world can know him, so the world can be restored to relationship with him, so that he can renew them in their relationship with him and with one another. Have we forgotten that because we're made in the image of the relational God who loves, we don't truly live until we love like he loves? So, thank you for giving me that time to, to remind us. Um, I, I, just, I just would, it would grieve me if we left here angry at the culture because they don't get this. The purpose of this this morning is that Jesus says, and he's not angry, but he's longing. Jesus says, My people, you don't get this yet either. And I want you to 
think about how to get it for yourselves, including you, preacher. So here's what I'd like to do. We'll walk through Genesis 2, 18 to 25 briefly, and then um, talk about a couple of the implications of that uh, for us today. So go to Genesis 2. Let's look again at verse 18. We're going to do a little Bible study here again and then uh, come back with some implications for us. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Um, Larry Crabb in his book, uh, which I highly recommend to you, Fully Alive, um, a biblical vision of gender, um, he, he paraphrased uh, in Genesis 1, 26 to 27 that we read a moment ago. And, and I think this is a beautiful paraphrase. I like it. It, it emphasizes this idea of, again, of why it's not good that man should be alone. He paraphrased it this way. He said, this is God speaking. Let us, a community of relational persons, make human beings in our image as relational beings, to be like us in the way we relate. So God created human persons in his own relational image with the godlike capacity to enjoy the kind of relational pleasure in human community that God enjoys in his divine community. In the image of a profoundly happy relational God, he created them, male and female, he created them. I just love that. It's not good that we should be alone because we're reflecting the God who is not alone, who is within himself a community. Let's, let's keep going. God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. He brought them to the man, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. That phrase is used twice. Let's break it down a little bit. A helper a helper fit for Adam. That's the Hebrew word, etzer. Uh, it's interesting that this word is most often used in the Old Testament to describe God. He's using it here to describe Eve, but it's most often used of God. Moses said, the God of my father was my help. My helper, it's the same word. Psalm 121 that we know well, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So God is the helper. So he's making a helper like God fit for Adam. It doesn't mean helper. Uh, sometimes we in our culture have this connotation that a helper is less than. Um, but it doesn't mean that Eve is less equal or able you wouldn't say that about God as the helper. Um, in fact, if anything, it implies that Adam is the one who's helpless. <laughs> uh, when God is our helper, we're the ones in need of help. And so uh, God made him a helper, someone to come and be helpful to him, though equal and Able, equally able. Fit for him, what does that mean? It, it means that Eve is opposite him, yes, but corresponding to him. 
None of the animals fit that description. They, they weren't going to work because they weren't fit for him. They weren't opposite him yet corresponding to him. Um, equal but complementary to him. And then male and female, yes. This is what God intended and designed. There are two genders. Genesis was given to us because we need help to interpret uh, what our feelings tell us. We need help to understand what our culture tells us. Uh, There's a fog of confusion inside us and all around us. And we need the one who created us to tell us, to reveal to us what's true and trustworthy about who we are and why we're here. And so, yes, it's important for us to understand that God made us male and female. Um, I had wished that I could do this today, but I, I, I just don't have time to get into it. It's so rich and so deep. But an understanding of what male and female, what those words even indicate about who we are and how we uh, love and relate to one another. Um, again, I would commend to you Dr. Crabb's book, Fully Alive. He goes into all of that stuff and makes it very practical. What is even down to the, the words male and female in the Hebrew? Um, Tracy Smith is going to... Um, be available to fellowship groups to come, and uh, he and I have talked about him coming alongside. He's done a lot of study on this and was actually uh, trained by Dr. Crabb um, at, at one point, and um, Tracy's willing to come to fellowship groups and sit down and unpack this for us. What does it mean uh, to live as a male? What does it mean to live as a female? So, important stuff. but we're going to move on. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he, slept, while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Um, One of my favorite things about officiating weddings is to see the look on the face of the groom when the bride is presented by her father. Um, It's, it's for me, besides the actual covenant taking place, it's the best part of the wedding, to see his face when he sees her, when her father presents him. Here is the father of the bride bringing this man, Adam, his wife, and he rejoices. Matthew Henry's comment on this captures the spirit of these verses. Listen to what he said. This is so helpful. And lots of people have quoted it since. He said, um, Eve was not made out of Adam's head to top him, She was not made out of his feet to be trampled upon by him. But she was made out of his side to be equal with him. 
under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. Isn't that beautiful? She was made from his side to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected and close to his heart to be loved by him. Men, (laughs) is this how we cherish the women in our lives? And not just our wives. Um, But this actually is instructive for how we are to treat all the women in our lives. Equal. Someone that we, we long to protect and care for. And someone we long to cherish and love. Um, our sisters, our daughters, our mothers, our wives, the women we work with. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The three things here uh, that this verse is teaching us. Yes, marriage is one man and one woman, and their purpose is to become one flesh. And verse 25, naked and not ashamed, they were to enjoy holy relating with one another. They were to enjoy being fully known and fully loved. And so this models the Trinity, who was... Three persons, not two, but three persons, but one God who fully knew and fully loved one another. They enjoyed holy relating in their relationship together. So marriage is an analogy of the Trinity. Um, God was creating two to be one, to be fully loved and fully known, to relate in a holy way, because that's what he does. Three, one, holy relating. So marriage is an analogy of the Trinity. The church is meant to be an analogy of the Trinity. Uh, our friendships with one another are meant to be an analogy of the Trinity. That, that there's multiple people who are in unity and seeking to fully know and fully love one another. How do we, in our marriages and churches and friendships, put the relational nature of, Trinity, of the Trinity on display? Three thoughts here. There, we are equal but distinct persons. We are plurality in unity. And we have relationships of self-giving love. Giving ourselves in love for one another. Equal but distinct persons. Adam and Eve were... Equally made in the image of God, but male and female, he created them. They were equal, but distinct. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal, but each distinct. Uh, Plurality and unity. There's more than one who become one, who live as one. And self-giving love of being fully known and fully loved. Here's where I would like us to take the mirror of what we're learning here. That we typically 
want to put in front of our culture and say, look, this is how it's supposed to be. Do you, do you match this? And I think I would like for us to take, take a moment to, let's quit putting the mirror out there and turn it to ourselves for a little longer. Uh, we, we tend to want to expose their thinking, but let's turn it around to us and expose our living. Because, again, we may have it all right, um, but I know myself, I, I, I'm not living what I know completely and perfectly. I'm sure you're not either. So let me ask us, how are we doing at putting the glorious goodness of our relational God on display to each other in the world. Look, equal but distinct persons. How, 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 that look, how does that look in your relationships with people you work with? Now, you may have supervisors and employers and employees, but how do you relate to them as equal but distinct persons. How does that look in your friendships? How does that look in your marriage? Do, do we consider each other and value one another as equal, yet both having a, a glorious distinction because God made us male and female, and we have different ways that we are equally Gifted and responsible to love one another and serve one another. Do we, do we appreciate and um, lift up the dignity of the other? Even in their, especially in their differences. Then how do we, how do, we do that as a church? We are uh, multiple different people with lots of distinction. but we're called to be one. How are we doing? What about plurality and unity in all of these areas? Um, let's particularly just say in marriage uh, and church. We are more than one person meant to operate as a unit together. How is the oneness in your marriage coming along? It's really easy in, in our lives to just be ships passing in the night, isn't it? There's so much going on, so much going on, so much going on. But God wants us to display the beauty of his oneness, his plurality and oneness in our oneness together. And the same for the church. And then self-giving love. How are we doing at, uh, if people were made to be fully known and fully loved, how can we do that with the people we work with? How can we create space in our relationships with the people we work with, the people we're married to, with our friends, with the people in our church, where they can be fully known and yet at the same time, not be ashamed, but be fully loved and be safe? Do we give each other time and do we 
give each other the patience that we need for us to grow. Well, those are just a few things to get you thinking about what this might look like to reflect the relational beauty of the Trinity in your relationships. But as I've thought about it this week, I I just, this is what I wrote. (laughs) I need Jesus so much. I can't point my finger at others and say, I thank God that I'm not relationally broken like all those people out there in the culture. I thank God that I'm not relationally broken like all those people in the church. I thank God that I'm not relationally broken like all those people at work or wherever. But I think that way. Don't you? I'm a finger pointer. When you all get your act together relationally, then I will too. I need Jesus, y'all. And thankfully, the promise is, what Genesis is all about is the beginning of the story of how Jesus is going to restore us all so that we can relationally relate with one another in a way that reflects the beauty of the Trinity. In, uh, in your bulletin, I put this quote by a guy named Daryl Johnson who wrote a great little book on the Trinity called Experiencing the Trinity. If you've never read about the Trinity, I would invite you to start with that book. It's short, simple, and very practical, but listen to what he said. It's very helpful. He says, again, some of it's a little repeat. He says, the living God is not a solitary God. The living God is not an isolated God. From all eternity, the living God has lived in relationship. Indeed, has lived as relationship. At the center of the universe is a relationship. From all eternity, the living God has been community and family. From all eternity, the living God has been infinitely pleased as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what he's about to say, I'll I'll fill in here a little bit. This God, that God, decided to come in the flesh to us in Jesus to restore us to our original purpose. Uh, Dr. Johnson goes on. The God who is us, he is an us, draws near to us through Jesus. And in drawing near to us, God draws us into and within the circle of his usness. Granting us entry into the inner fellowship of God's life. That's mind-blowing. He goes on. The community at the center of the universe draws near to me in Christ. That would be good enough. And draws near to me in such a way that the community draws me into the interrelatedness of his community. An astounding claim, he says. But this is the fundamental message of the scripture. This is what the Bible's all about. It's what friendship with God is all about. It's what the kingdom is all about. And he goes on, and here is the gospel. The God who is love draws near to me, a sinful, mere mortal, to draw me near to himself in order to draw me within the circle of love itself. And so, he says, I become a co-lover with God. It's the very reason for my existence and for yours. And for every other person who lives or has ever lived on this planet, 
We are co-lovers with God of God. We are co-lovers with God of one another. And we are co-lovers with God of the world. Unbelievable what we have been invited into through Christ. So as you seek to mirror the relational glory and goodness of your God and your relationships, here's what I want you to leave with. I want you to remember this this morning. Through Jesus, you have been given access into the relationship that is the center of all reality. Sit on that for a little while. You have access into that relationship, into the fellowship. One of the benedictions I give at the end of the service is, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, you're invited in. Through Jesus, you're being renewed in the image of Jesus. And he's the perfect relator. He's the perfect child. He's the perfect husband. He's the perfect friend. He's the perfect worker. And you're being renewed into his image. And you might say, well, how could I ever love like he does? Well, the gospel tells us that you're filled and indwelt by the spirit of this Jesus who will empower you to love like he loves. The, the fruit of the spirit is love. That's the fruit of the spirit of Jesus. And then Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that this mindset of Jesus's is already ours in him so that we can do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count ourselves count others more significant than ourselves so that we can look not only to our own interests but also to the interests of others. Why? Because we have this mind in us which is ours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself to what to, to what point? to the point of becoming obedient, to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's a picture of how the Father and the Son and the Spirit relate to one another. They don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, they always count each other as more significant than themselves. They're always looking out for each other's interests. And they're willing not to count equality as something to be grasped, but to empty for the sake of people who need them. And the last encouraging thing I have to tell you as you seek to love like that is that Jesus is praying for you. John 17, Jesus is praying for you. John 17, he prayed, and I believe he still prays this. Father, I ask that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, Father. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus is praying that we would be 
relationally like him and the Father and the Spirit. So, remember that. So imagine you're sitting at a coffee shop up here, Mayfly, Pruitt's, maybe down the mountain at Starbucks. And you overhear people talking about Mountain Fellowship people. Make you nervous yet? No. But you overhear them talking about Mountain Fellowship people. And they say something like, can you believe those people? The way, the, the way they relate to each other as a church and in their marriages and their friendships and in the community and at work, it's different. It's intense. It's, it's gracious. It's patient. It's tenderly strong. I've never seen anything like it. It's otherworldly. I, I, it's kind of weird to say. I never use this word, but it's almost like it's holy and of course (laughs) if we heard people talking about us like that each of us would say oh oh we long for that to be true but we've got a long way to go to get there Uh, I know I do we would say and that's why we come to the word of Jesus and to the table of Jesus every week Because we know how easily we forget that we were created and redeemed to put the relational beauty of God on display to the people at the next table. Listen, the culture forgets all of this because they don't know. We know, and we still forget. And so we come here to remember Jesus to have him remind us of who we are in him. And we don't get up from this table this morning and go out to love so that people will give us a standing ovation because we're the most powerful humans on the planet. No, we come and we dine on the love of Jesus and go live like Jesus so that people will see him in us and give him all glory. And... Come to him. Come to him because they long for their relationships to be redeemed. Father, uh, that's, that's what we want. We want our relationships to be renewed. And you have promised that through Jesus, you can restore us to the way you made us. Um, that you can make us relate like he does. We desperately need you this morning. We all of us are sitting here and at some level saying, "Mm, that's beyond me. I know it's beyond me, Father. I know way more about how I'm supposed to relate than I actually practice. And so I need you, Jesus, I need you. Please do what you promised and come and renew us into your image and make us people who love. Thank you for this table. 
promises and shows us, pictures for us, the love you have for us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.